and that I always tell my students is, you know, the best way to succeed is basically don't be a jerk. Welcome to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. This week, it's perhaps uh, more aptly the emotional side of the intellectual journey, as my guest is a world expert in the psychology of emotion. But before we get into that, um, in the previous couple of episodes, I've talked a bit about my process in getting the podcast off the ground. And so this week, I want to touch briefly on the music and the logo. So for both of them, I did some research into similar kinds of podcasts about what their logos communicate in terms of branding and uh, how the music stitches together the content. And so for the logo, I basically developed it in in a single afternoon. I couldn't really pay someone to do it um but getting that done uh because you know getting that done well would have cost me more than i was willing to pay at the time and i'm still not willing to pay for the professional logo because i'm still not making any money here but what i did was i developed a couple dozen different logos uh, that i sketched in powerpoint and these were relatively simple designs that took inspiration from other logos that i'd seen Most of them were obviously not good, um, and so then I took the ones that seemed promising and iterated on them. I found a few fonts that I liked on the internet, and I went to a website called The Noun Project. That's where I got the icons. Um, So I essentially just played around with the different configurations of possible fonts and icons and arrangements, and I got some feedback from a few friends. And then I bought the fonts and the icons. And so I I had a similar sort of process with the music. I had originally asked a friend to record a couple things that I could put into the show, but I realized that I didn't really have a good sense of how to communicate what I was looking for in terms of the feel. And so uh, I just decided to sit down and record my own piano riff. There are three riffs in the show, and I essentially spent one session thinking them up and sort of composing them, and then uh, another session recording Uh, each one five or six times and I just took the best and put it in the show and uh, so I think the overall point here is that both the logo and the music are what you might think of as minimum viable products Uh, which is that they're they're not quite professional but they're also not bad enough to distract from the overall content and what's most important uh, is that I had a potential barrier to start the show Uh, which is, you know, I'm not a graphic designer, I'm not a professional musician, and I didn't have the money to to throw into the project like that, and that that could have been a block. But I knew that they were things that mattered much less than the actual content itself, which is what is most important to me to dedicate my focus to at the moment. And uh, once I get some traction, I can go back later and spruce up all the things that need to be leveled up. And uh, so to me, it's very important that I didn't let those smaller considerations get in the way of pursuing the overall goal that I had uh, in starting this show. So now let's get to my guest this week. He is the author of several books, including most recently Emotional Success. He is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and the American Psychological Association, for which he served as the editor-in-chief of the journal Emotion. His writing has been featured in venues such as the New York Times, the Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, He is a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, where he directs the Social Emotions Group. I am excited to introduce to you David DeStenny. 
All right, so uh, David, uh, I'm a big admirer of your work. Uh, you've got it, you know, all going on from academic papers to you outreach to a broader audience for articles and books. And I'm looking forward to diving into talking to all about that. So thanks for coming on the show today. Sure, thanks for your for your kind words there, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So. Uh, why don't you uh, give us a picture of what your average day looks like right now so we can kind of have a sense of, you know, comparing where you are now to, to where you come from when we start to dive into that. Sure. You know, my, well, my average day is a little different right now because I'm on sabbatical, um, but I'm working on a new book project. And in some ways, it's not that different from my average day <laughs> across the years. Um, I would say my average day is uh, I usually block around four hours or so for writing, working on this book, which basically is a combination of you know doing some research, outlining, figuring out how my narrative is going to go because you always start with a with a you know thirty thousand foot narrative, and when you get down to the nitty gritty of actually writing the narrative page by page, sometimes you realize, oh wait, this doesn't quite work. And so um, it's, it's it's a bunch of that. Uh, it's also um, you know editing papers from my students. Um, finding some time to apply for grants here and there. But I'd say most of my day right now really is, is, is centered on either either writing my, my next book or, or writing academic papers. All right. I would kind of like to dive into those four hours that you have uh, for, for writing to kind of understand your process a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Are those... Uh, can they be anything from writing to research, or do you do you have time blocked out for research? Do you have uh, word goals like that? What's uh, what what's the sort of structure of those four hours? Yeah, so uh, it's it's not so much that the hours are structured the same every day. It's that I, it's that I have goals for any given week um, and what I have to accomplish in those four hours. So. You know, I try to write between. I, I try to write about a thousand words a day on days that I'm writing, um, which actually isn't that much if you sit down and think about a thousand words is like slightly longer than your average op-ed. Um, but there's a lot of writing and saying, wait, no, that doesn't work, and changing the voice and changing the arguments, so it can take a lot longer to do that. Um, so how much how much of those thousand words sees the light of day? Uh, in their original form, you mean? <laughs> um, in their original form, maybe about 100 or 200 of those words uh, okay, before they get revised. But for yeah. me, the way I like to do it is, uh, so I, I have, um, I'm trying to do a chapter of my book a month. And so uh, what that usually means is the first week of any month, I'm using all those, all those four hours a day to kind of really delve in and outline everything and go through the papers that I've decided to talk about in detail, make sure I have everything accurate, um, go down a few rabbit holes from what I find in those papers for related findings. And so by the end of the first week, I, I kind of have a pretty detailed outline of what I want to cover and what I want to say. And then the following three weeks for that chapter, it's pretty much breaking that you know larger chapter into chunks and, and working through the narrative and Writing thing. I mean, I've you know this is this is my fourth book. As you said, I, I write a lot for for the media, uh, for you know like the the Times and the Atlantic and stuff. And so I'm pretty good at this point about writing in non-academic ease, um, in a way that's that, that's more accessible. But no matter how much I do it, you know, the first draft is still too dry, <laughs> or the clauses are still too long. And so um, 
you know, it's, it's a lot about going in and, and reshaping. So I'll write for a day. The next day I start by reading exactly what I wrote the next day and tuning it up in terms of getting rid of the academic ease and then, and then moving forward. And so do you ever, are you ever off about what the overall structure of the book is like, right? Because you have a, a pretty solid sense, you know, I imagine from your proposal, what the different chapters are going to be. Do you ever get halfway through and be like, oh, well, there's actually a different way to get through even the 30,000 foot view of what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, so this this book more, so just let me take a step back. This is a book on science and religion. And so... Um, many of my other books were strictly about psychological research. And so I knew, I knew the material really well. In fact, I could probably have spit out to you 90% of each chapter just talking about it. Um, this book requires me to do a lot more background research outside of my, my field. Because what I'm trying to do is, is make an argument that many religious practices and rituals, etc., work on a very deep psychological neuroscientific level and so, and so I'm trying to explain how what those practices do to use a scientific word ping <laughs> ping the brain in certain ways um, and so I have to spend a little more time you know learning exactly what those rituals and practices are um, so I had a more detailed outline than I usually do but even with that you know uh, I'd say chapter two I was uh, you know halfway through it and the 30,000-foot level stayed the same, but the 20,000-foot level <laughs> changed. That is, things, rituals I thought I was going to talk about to make one point, it became clear to me were, were much more relevant to a different point. And so I, you know, I changed things around. Yeah, interesting. So I guess I mean, one, I mean one... the thing... Yeah, sorry, the, go ahead. The thing that, that I think is really important for any writer is when you you know you you have an idea you have your metaphors you have your your intended narrative flow of the argument you're going to make but until you make it in excruciating detail sometimes it's not clear that the metaphor the finding you're highlighting you know at a third of the way in doesn't contradict what you're going to say two-thirds of the way in and you don't know that until you do it and then it's so it becomes really important to make sure that you know both for an accuracy sense and and for a narrative flow sense to make you know sure that the story is 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 consistent it's funny how crystallizing those thoughts uh on the page makes such a big difference in terms of clarity and, and coherence and and uh consistency and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. so uh one more question on this before we sort of dive into the other stuff is that, so one thing that I'm interested in is writing from a position of authority and expertise mm -hmm. versus going into something that you know less about at the outset. Mm -hmm. And so those original three books that you read, you were authoritatively discussing a subject that you are, you know, a, you know undeniable world expert on, whereas now... You're still using that expertise as a as a platform and a and a, and a place of you know understanding, mm -hmm. but you're going into something that is uh, a a little bit you know there's more to flesh out there mm -hmm. uh, during the process. How has that difference uh, played out for you in the writing so far? Yeah, I I one I find it a lot more interesting and a lot more exciting to do. Uh, you know, it's funny I along with Lisa Feldman Barrett and Jamie Ryerson from the New York Times and 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 I we we run the science writing workshop for people uh, for scholars to teach them how to write, you know, op-eds, etc. And one of the issues that always comes up is people say, "Well, you know, I should only write about 
my central area of expertise, right? I, you know, if, if I study um, emotion and decision making, I shouldn't really have anything to say about anything else in psychology. Um, and what we try and convince people is, you know, no, that's not the case. I mean, look, you know, David Brooks, Nicholas Kristof are writing about our research all the time, and they're not nearly as, as you know, knowledgeable about the nitty gritty of the science itself. I mean, they're they're intelligent, incredibly intelligent people and, and amazing writers and, and critics. And so, I think what we're trying to to convince people to do, and, and you know, now I'm I'm walking the walk in my own book, not only talking the talk, is, um, it's okay to to write beyond your area of expertise as long as you do so in a way that you can intellectually defend. And so for me, writing on the psychology of religion and, and what this means, um, you know, if David Brooks can do it, I can do it, and I even feel more comfortable explaining the nuances of the scientific literature in so doing. So I think it, it, it stretches our mind, our mind being being scientists, um, because it makes us think about what we normally do in our little silo, how that may be manifested in other parts of the world in ways that we don't typically think about. And, you know, you, you want to be responsible like any writer or journalist would. That is, when you're describing science as fact, you say so. When you're describing things as theory or speculation, you say so. But um, I actually find it quite liberating and quite exciting to do that. I mean, you know, I've been I've been in this business now, you know, of running a lab and writing papers. God, if you include graduate school for almost 30 years, and I can write a scientific paper almost in my sleep. And so, you know, it's important to do. I love doing it. I love doing the science. But the writing of it gets kind of boring after a while, um, and so it's it, it's nice to be able to stretch your mind and 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 work in in this other type of um, of, of style. So let's uh, go and dive in maybe to some of those earlier years. When so it's starting graduate school. Um, when did you sort of start to get a, a sense of the questions you were interested in? Yeah, so I started graduate school way back in 1991. So I was in graduate school from 1991 to 1996. Um, and I, when I went to graduate school, one of the things that I was really interested in was uh, I knew I, was, I wanted to study emotion. And so I was thrilled when I got accepted to work with Peter Salovey at Yale. When I got there, right, because, you know, Peter's, Peter's an emotion theorist. When I got there, Peter was in the midst of... Uh, doing his, his what I call his psych and health phase, um, and so almost everyone in the lab was doing health research, um, and so I got there and I felt completely out of uh, out of sorts in the sense that you know I was the only person kind of doing straight emotion and social psychology at the time, but Peter being Peter and the other great people in the lab, it was it was still a, an amazing experience. Um, and in that time period, I was really just interested in all types of emotion work. And so what I began working on were things that, that Peter was working on or, or projects or chapters that he was asked to write. And so I did a lot of work on uh, jealousy. I did a lot of work on, on mood and, and social cognition, primarily self-concept stuff. Um, after that, I did a postdoc with Rich Petty at uh, Ohio State. And uh, our overlap was, Rich, as you probably know, is, you know, a major figure in attitudes and persuasion literature. But one of the things he's interested in is how people's emotional states shape uh, persuasion. Um, and so we did some work together there. And then I started my own lab and kind of adopting Peter's style. Um, 
my main goal was when I would bring any student in was that they would finish not being, you know, mini me, uh, but having their own line of work that was identified with them. And so the emotions we looked at, the phenomena we studied, were pretty much driven by who was in my lab. Um, and so we focused on things like gratitude and on pride and on compassion. Um, and in the early days, I did some more work on emotions and attitude chains, emotions and prejudice. But what came to really interest me over time was a lot of these emotions that we were studying were related to uh, uh, social uh, social behavior, primarily issues of, of cooperation and trust and self-sacrifice, and things that really have a moral overtone to them. And so I became more and more interested in moral psychology. And so now I'd say the the primary focus of that I'm interested in is is how people's emotional states, especially emotional states with moral overtones, again, things like gratitude, compassion, empathy, how these shape character from the bottom up, that is, how they shape our virtuous behavior and and what kind of emotion interventions can we use as nudges for for virtuous uh, virtuous behavior. And I think that occupies the majority of of what we do uh, what we do right now. I have another side gig that I, I work with Cynthia Brazil at the MIT Media Lab, and we've done lots of work on on social robotics um, and how to uh, incorporate kind of uh, affective phenomena into uh, into robots in terms of them uh, teaching children in terms of them being partners for um, adults to team with on projects. And so that's that's kind of fun. Every time I go over there, it's like Disneyland when you walk in there. And it's amazing collaboration for my students because, you know, we'll walk in there and we'll be like, well, we, we need to, to figure out a way to code this behavior. And they're like, oh, don't worry, we'll just hack the Xbox for you. <laughs> but then they'll say something yeah. like, they'll say something like, okay, so what, why do we need a control group? And then we can answer that. And so it's like, you know, it, it's, it's a great collaboration of, of, of skill sets from two entirely different domains. That's really fun. So there's a few things that I want to go back and unpack throughout that. Sure. Um, the first would be, so you came into graduate school really certain that you wanted to, to study emotion. Mm -hmm. What sparked that interest? Was there something in your, in your personal life or did you recognize something in the literature where did that come from for you? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I don't really know the origin. I remember that even I did an honors thesis as an undergraduate, and it was on, oh gosh, what was it on? It was on mood state and something. <laughs> I can't even remember what it was on. Uh, oh, I think it was on mood state and changes in self-concept um, structure. Um, so uh, I'm not sure why that interested me. Um, originally. I, I think I just found the idea that people have this experience, colloquially speaking, uh, you know, we can talk about the science about why this isn't exactly right, but this, uh, the colloquial ex experience of, or the familiar experience of feeling like you're carried away by your emotions or they change how you look at things and they're such powerful motivators of, of what you feel. And I think I, I found that really interesting. In, in some ways, when I was an undergraduate, I was deciding between being a, being a history of religions major and a psychologist. So I feel like I've, I've come full circle now in, in, in writing this book. And I, yeah, I, I ultimately, because I was always interested in, in, in also kind of moral behavior too, in, in terms of you know, the broad sense or how we find meaning or what's right and wrong. Um, and I originally decided that I was going to, ch I chose to do psychology instead of history of religions because 
as fascinating as I found, you know, arguing points of theology and, and, and what people meant in certain understandings of God, etc., you couldn't really find an answer. And so what appealed to me in psychology was I could go and do an experiment and have actual data. And so that's what kind of sent me down, uh, sent me down that route. Although not answering some of the same questions, you really can't get data about, is there a God or what does he or she want? But now I'm kind of back at that, not, not in the theology sense, but in the sense of what, what makes people behave in ways that are, that are virtuous and what can we do to kind of, you know, nudge that up a bit. I think that's uh, really fascinating if you think about it, right? That you have uh, essentially dedicated your life to this one uh, sort of pursuit. And it's a little bit lost to the mist of time where exactly that initial inclination to do that came from. But wherever it came from, it seems to have worked out quite well for you. So, Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, and there was... There was the years in between when I didn't think about any of those initial interests, when it was just like, okay, I need to get papers out so I can yeah. get a job. Um, but the, it was always there, and I think now I, you know, I went off and I developed my my empirical toolbox. And over the past ten years, I've kind of gravitated back to the questions that originally fascinated me. Not that the other ones didn't, but you know, when you're when you're an assistant professor, the the job the the goal is to get very tractable questions that you can test and get papers out with. So. So when you when you went to Yale and you sort of had this mm-hmm. expectation and the reality of it kind of violated that expectation, mm-hmm. what did you do? What adjustments did you make to sort of deal with that? And like you said, you had a job to do. You had to get those papers out. Um, how how did you sort of navigate that uh, transition? It was. I mean, it was actually pretty easy in the sense that you know Peter was always interested in, in emotions. He was interested in the questions that I was bringing. It just at at the time. He had he had several really large grants focused on emotion and health behavior and students who were who were interested intrinsically in those questions. So, it it wasn't so much a problem um, in that you know it was a great bunch of people and everybody was interested in what I was doing and I was interested in what they were doing. But it, what it, what it meant is that the questions and the studies that I was working on, I didn't have close peers who were working on those exact same issues with those exact same methodologies to bounce things back and forth of, but on. But short of that, it, it wasn't really um, a problem. My, my bigger problem in graduate school was for whatever reason, I mean, Yale graduate classes are, are you know, it's a smaller department, or at least it was at the time. And for, for whatever reason, the year that I began, I was the only... Um, the only first-year grad student in the social area. And so I remember sitting in seminars that, that first semester um, with, with Mazarin Banaji and, you know, hearing all the advanced students talking about studies by X, Y, and Z and this methodology and that, and I was completely lost. Right? I'm like, oh my God, I am never going to be able to... to to remember this many studies or to cite chapter and verse the things they do, you know, am I really going to be okay here? And of course, with retrospect, you realize that's just, you know, by the time you're a third year graduate student, everybody does that. And so, but, but not having anyone else in my cohort in those seminars was a bit of a frightening experience. Um, but again, you know, one tempered by the fact that everybody was just so lovely there that it was totally fine, but you have those moments of self-doubt. Was there a way in which that was kind of a um, a blessing for you? In that I know a lot of your gratitude research has looked at 
the ways in which it sort of supports our overall well-being. And I guess I, I'm not uh, sure exactly what you mean by uh, health, but um, you know these these ways in which uh, our effective responses to things make our life palpably better in uh, our, our our well-being and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think looking back through the lens of research knowledge that I have now, surely at the time I wasn't working on that or thinking about those issues, but I was, I was certainly grateful for the fact that um, everybody was as incredibly supportive as they were. And by the second semester, I felt totally comfortable, but um, you know, I think, I think, I think all of us in some ways may have that, that initial doubt about being there. And I think for me, it was, you know, can I hack graduate school? And I think for me, it was just exacerbated by, not having a peer in that same situation to look to. Although, you know, you're right, you, you, you know, depending on who your peer is, that could be a blessing or a curse. My friend, like my colleague, Lisa Sullivan Barrett, always likes to say, uh, the best thing for any other human being's nervous system is another human being. The worst thing for any human being's nervous system is another human being. It just depends, <laughs> it just depends on who that human being is. So Yeah, oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, so... Um, I guess another thing that I'm interested in here is, uh, do you think that there's like a general takeaway from that where it, it's an important balance to have people who, uh, similar perspectives and people who have different, whereas maybe it's the natural sort of tendency of graduate students to seek out as close a match they can with their interests, whereas so much of our interesting ideas come from being able to bring together two previously disparate areas of knowledge. Do you think that there's some sort of way to trade off that balance early on in your career of gaining that sort of narrow expertise that you need to have as your foundation, but also incorporating the other aspects of it that um, yeah. are, are going to broaden your knowledge base? It's a, it's a good question, and I think it's one we debate um, as you know faculty members all the time in the sense that I think the biggest discoveries, the best science that we're going to do now or that's being done now is really of an interdisciplinary nature. And some of the work that I'm most proud of is, is you know, I've had three very large interdisciplinary projects uh, funded by NSF with, with the folks in robotics and economics and education. And we tackle issues that I find really fascinating there. And I think we, we have results that are, that are applicable widely. Um, and so I think it's very important to be able to work with and and be able to speak to and think in very interdisciplinary ways. And the, a lot of that is due to the successes. I was on a couple years back on an NSF um, uh, task force where we kind of reviewed the success of interdisciplinary projects. And what, what came to light was whether interdisciplinary work, how well it works, is a function not only of the expertise people bring, but of their willingness to be open-minded and engaged. So oftentimes what happens when people get interdisciplinary grants is everybody takes their money and goes back to their cave and does what they were doing anyway, a little project, and puts it forward to the other folks. And in, in essence, the interdisciplinary grant was a way to get money for everybody to do what they wanted to do anyway. Um, but the better projects are the ones where people really spend the time to learn how to talk across concepts uh, and across methodologies. And I think you have to be, you have to have some tolerance for ambiguity in doing that. You have to have some tolerance for engagement and some level of intellectual humility to realize that, you know, your way or your, your tool set isn't the only or the always the best one. 
So it sounds like I'm saying, yes, everybody should be trained in, in an interdisciplinary fashion, but the countervailing force there is sometimes if you try to be good at lots of tools, you're a master of none. And that's always a problem too, right? Because the really good interdisciplinary work relies on skill sets of people who are who are willing to talk and think across areas, but have true mastery in what it is that they do in their silo. And, you know, I, I've seen this in being on many hiring committees now. Sometimes it's, if a person is really, and by interdisciplinary, I don't mean, you know, you're a developmental psychologist who does some social psychology work, or, you know, you do some behavioral studies and some computational-based simulations. What I mean is you're actually doing work that is across different fields entirely. Sometimes it's hard for those people to find a home in, in terms of a job because everybody will say, oh yeah, I would love, you know, uh, comp sci if you guys hired someone who's interested in, in psych, but we're not going to use our slot on, on that or vice versa. Um, and so I, I think my advice to people in graduate school who are thinking about this is try and find interdisciplinary projects to work on. Make yourself able to converse and fluent in the language and concepts of multiple fields. But don't do that at the expense that you're not coming out as master of something. Because that's where you can build, that, that's where you, the rock upon which you build your base to do your own straight disciplinary work and to be an attractive partner or colleague to work with other people who, who want that skill set but also are looking for someone who's willing to think big and, and, and converse across silos. So, sorry, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> but, but I think, I think you know, you, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity is hugely important, but not at the expense of, of, of mastery of, of a good set of tools. So I want to go back now and talk a little bit about some of the the mentorship that you received through mm -hmm. your um, grad school and postdoc, and it sounds like you got a, an awful lot out of both of those. So mm -hmm. maybe um, what sort of things did you import to your own lab when you were getting started in terms of best practices from those mentors uh, that uh, you know have worked well for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I, In some ways, I feel that I'm a great example in terms of of melding different advisor styles, um, and, I, and I, not really styles. I should say styles of work that really have to do with the places they were. So, so Yale was a great place, um, and it was the kind of place where you were given freedom to think about whatever you wanted, and uh, huge support to kind of go after larger questions. By virtue of its size, um, it was limiting in the sense that, that subject pool resources were very small, right? Yale's not a giant state university. Um, and so uh, what I did there was, was I learned from, from Peter, you know, how to kind of try and think and put together larger theoretical pieces uh, to, to work at a theoretically high level um, and to think craft things really tightly because when you were only getting 100 subjects a year you didn't want to waste them um, and then I remember when I when I went to um, Rich Petty's lab at Ohio State um, both Rich and Peter are, are the warmest most wonderful people personally but the style of work was entirely different because now I was at a giant state university 
where the resources in terms of subject running were, you know, I mean, I mean, Rich would get, I don't know, a thousand people a semester to run or something crazy. And so uh, I remember my first meeting with him when I, ha I had him, he said, go, you know, bring me your ideas for a project. And so I, I brought him my ideas and I said, okay, let's, now we should pre-test this and pre-test this to make sure it's going to work. And he's like, just run the study. I'm like, but what happens if it doesn't work? He looked at me, he says, well, then we fix the methodology and we run it again. <laughs> I'm like, what about <laughs> subjects? He's like, there is no shortage of subjects, right? And so, oh, and so the style, wow. the, right? So the yeah. style of work was very was was very different because you could, you know, you had the luxury of trying trying methodologies and stuff without being so worried that you were basically wasting your one to be Hamilton. Don't waste your shot, right? Um, so uh, it was it was different and so and and what i learned from rich was really how to do really tight I mean, rich is he's great in lots of methodology but in some ways i learned how to be the master of the two by two from him that is right how do you take these big concepts and boil them down to really tight experimental manipulations um and so i think you know having the the, the two sides have really kind of influenced my 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 thinking and gave me entirely different skill sets and i'm i'm grateful to both of them who who worked in very different ways to sharing that toolbox with me but the one thing they had in common and that i always tell my students is you know the best way to succeed is basically don't be a jerk um you know i i see over and over and over again how well it doesn't happen that much but i i've seen many times how Certain people have this view that, you know, graduate school was really difficult for them. They were driven extremely hard and they're going to drive their graduate students extremely hard. Um, and what I like to tell people is remember that your students now are going to be your colleagues later. And I, for better or worse, feel very, I've always felt very paternalistic toward my students and hopefully in, in a good way. And I, and I think they would say that in that my goal for them to come work with me is that I make their life better. And normally that is for them to get a job as a psychologist, right? That's why they're coming to work with me. But if they don't want to do that, if they want to go to industry, or the majority of my students have ended up deciding they wanted to go to small liberal arts colleges to teach, probably because many of them came from that route, and, and, and so did I. And I think that's great. You know, you don't have to come, you know, they would be like, oh, if I don't go get a job at an R1 university, are you going to think I didn't do well? I'm like, I don't care what you do as long as you're happy. Go work for Google. Go work for, uh, you know, whomever. Um, my goal is to teach you, to help you develop as a scholar, and to help you land wherever you want to be. And I think that was both Peter and Rich's philosophy as well. And so I, you know, I, I hold that deeply in my in my soul about a, about a way of of doing graduate training. Graduate school is stressful enough anybody no matter who you are who your advisor is certainly was for me just with all the pressures and the changes in life going on um, and so whoever you work with make sure that you feel comfortable in that person and that person is going to be supportive of you because that's going to make all the difference in five years of intense activity so uh, one thing I want to touch on in that is that there is maybe a couple different ways to think about uh, specialization Mm -hmm. And like you said, you had those amazing uh, experiences um, uh, with your different advisors. So, so one way to think about specialization is in terms of content, like we were talking about earlier with discipline, interdisciplinarity, 
where you have your silo of expertise, someone else has theirs, you bring those together. Another way to think of it is uh, sort of methodologically. And some people uh, really excel as experimentalists, some uh, you know, with theory, some with synthesizing, some with really being at that cutting edge. Do you feel like you have a specialty of like, well, this is what I've consistently you know, yeah, done yeah, that has yeah. that is sort of undergirded my contributions? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So early on um, when I was studying emotion and social behavior, one thing that I was always dissatisfied with, well, two things. One was the way people induce emotions. So, you know, oftentimes emotions are induced with videos uh, or, or hypotheticals. You know, right about a time you may have felt this or that. And I've, I've done both of those, so I'm not on my high horse saying never do those. But what became clear to me, especially in terms of when we move from studying basic things like anger or sadness or happiness, which can be, I think, induced in a very um, real way by watching a movie, um, with things like gratitude and you know things like jealousy, um, you have to do them in vivo. Uh, and so one thing my lab is known for is developing these crazy paradigms with lots of shenanigans using actors and confederates to evoke emotions in real time. So for example, when we study jealousy in real time, how do you do that ethically? Well, you can't bring in people and tell one of the partners okay now i want you to flirt right so so yeah. we, we developed this whole paradigm where people came in and we had uh confederates um work with them and flirt with them on a task with you know they're working on a joint task and they were flirting with them and then afterward we had another confederate come in and then that confederate started flirting with the other person and then and then the original confederate would would basically had a choice of who he or she wanted to go to work with and they would go work with the new person um, and this induced some jealousy. In fact, my one of my one of my grad students at the time, um, his wife still blames me for for ruining his <laughs> his his romantic skills by making him flirt with people <laughs> over and over again. Um, no, that's no. so um, funny. But you know, it, it's it, and it induced jealousy in real time. And then the question is, how do you study? How do you study actual behavior? Well, if you're going to study moral behavior, you can't ask people, what would you do? Because sometimes people will lie, like we, we study cheating, and sometimes, you know, people would lie and say, well, I know I'd cheat, but I'm not going to say that because of social desirability. But more often what I think really happens is people don't think they would act in an immoral way. They don't predict they would cheat. You know, it's kind of an affective forecasting error. But when push comes to shove, and there's actual real rewards in front of them, so we have situations where you can flip a coin, it's a virtual coin, so we can control what happens. Um, and you either get stuck doing 45 minutes of drudgery or 10 minutes of a fun task, or you earn a dollar or $10, depending upon the coin flip, you know, suddenly when those things are real, the rewards and, and costs are real in front of you, people's behavior changes. You know, we have studies where 100% of people tell us it would be wrong to cheat, and then a majority of them do. Um, and when we study gratitude, we, we have situations where people are working on the computer and the computer's rigged to fail and they lose all their work and then somebody comes and helps them or, you know, compassion, somebody's sick and they, a confederate behaves in a way that they're sick, but they have to finish this work or they're going to lose their credit. And so what my lab is really known for is creating immersive, socially immersive 
inductions and DVs where we can study these things happening in real time. And the thing I really like about that work is it's incredibly powerful and incredibly ecologically valid. Uh, and I think people love seeing it because of that. The thing I don't like about that work is that it's incredibly laborious and it means we run one subject at a time for an hour and uh, it can take a long time to get projects done because of that. So one thing that I'm really fascinated with in that is that you made this transition from going through pretty broad emotions like happiness and anger to more nuanced emotions uh, like jealousy. And um, I think one thing that, especially in the general uh, you know, public, we think about emotion as this very broad, blunt thing that kind of has these really broad strokes to it and doesn't paint as much with a finer brush. But there are definitely uh, aspects of emotion that can get really nuanced. And uh, I think one thing for me personally is I, I get this a lot through art and music, right? Mm -hmm. When you listen to a song that's telling of a specific situation, you can elicit these uh, uh, emotional reactions that are, you can categorize them in, in the broad strokes of what they are, but they're a very specific emotion in response to mm -hmm. a very specific situation, which you may not frequently encounter in your daily life, but through that art or through that music, you're able to connect with it. So I'm wondering if there's any sort of like personal aspect to the your own way that you connect with emotions, right? Because obviously you have this uh, scholarly knowledge of it, and it's been a professional interest of yours. And I'm wondering if there's a personal side to that as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think so, especially, uh, so, so let me take one step back and then I'll answer your question. So. You know, in what you're touching on is a debate that is, or sorry, is an issue that is a fundamental debate in the study and science of emotion right now. Um, and I think it, it, the argument you're making is is similar to an argument my colleague Lisa Feldman Barrett makes, which I which I think is right. And that is, there's not only one form of anger. There's not only one form of gratitude. Um, they they're very con they can be very context. Specific, you know, what I always tell her is, is these emotion labels are like stereotypes. Um, there's a lot of, of things that we call anger, and they share some features in common, but it's not a unitary construct. Lisa talks about them as, as kind of in the Darwinian sense, as there's a population of, of, of gratitude experiences, like there's a population of gazelles or humans, but they're not all exactly the same. And, and these emotions are, are constructed uh, given the specific situational inputs that you're talking about that provide those nuances. And I think that's right. And that in, 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 in no way means that emotions aren't true or emotions aren't real things. Um, it just means that how we understand what it means to, to experience gratitude and what they are are different. But back, back to your question. Um, for me, as I study these moral emotions more and more, um, I've begun to see their importance socially. That is, I study them not as just things we experience and describe, but as sources of motivation, both conscious and kind of below our conscious awareness as nudges. And I've seen the things that they do in life in terms of building connections or making it easier to persevere toward your goals or to be willing to sacrifice other for other people. 
And so for me, it's trying to curate those in my own life. So it's funny, you know, we do a lot of work on meditation and compassion services. So Dave, you must meditate, right? I'm like, no, <laughs> not because I don't think it's a good thing, but because I just never find the time to do it. Um, and so, but for me, it's more about, okay, I see the science, I see the evidence of why many of these states are important to building not only your own kind of toward your own goals and your own well-being, but toward larger social capital and, and the health and happiness of those around you. And so for me, it's, it's about identifying these experiences and about identifying what else I can do in my life to kind of cultivate them more. And I'd say that's more of a very recent thing when I was back in the old days, right, just studying more basic emotions like anger or happiness. That didn't occur to me much because, well, you know, I really don't want more anger in my life. Twitter does enough of that. Um, <laughs> So, but now as I study these things, uh, and it, it goes right all the way back, you know, we're, we're talking about the kind of circle of academic life here. When I was at Yale, Peter was working on emotional intelligence, which he was doing alongside the health stuff. Emotional intelligence has, you know, many components to it. People typically think of, oh, can you recognize emotion in others, which if you're in industry, that means you can use it, take advantage of them. Can you uh, keep little Johnny calm and regulate his emotions? And the schools are interested in this so that they don't have disruptive kids. But there's a third part of it, which nobody really talks about much, and which my last book was more about, which is, can we use our emotions as tools to help us achieve goals in life, whether those yeah. goals in life are to, to get things that we want or, or goals to help other people? And I think that's the part that fascinates me, and that's the part that I'm trying to incorporate more in my in my own life now, which is I, I see the science of why these emotions are important. Um, how do I ensure that I then experience them more, and how do I help my kids experience them more? Uh, I'll say my kids are way ahead of me, so that's a good yeah. thing. Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, maybe we can use that... Uh to to as a jumping off point into something I want to talk about with some of your current interests, which uh, so one one thing that you've been talking about in your published articles and as well as I imagine your book is the sort of dialogue between scientists and religious people. And mm. that sort of strikes me as the original debate about which neither side is likely to change their view. Mm. And uh, in many ways that it seems like the best case scenario there is that they're takes place a sympathetic dialogue in which both sides learn from the other what they can and what, what that other person has to offer without necessarily having to modify their core beliefs. Right. And so uh, do you think uh, our society, perhaps in political discourse, can learn something about that debate and the way it's been conducted between science and religion? I think so. I mean, so my my goal here is I think you've you've presaged it well. It is um, you don't have to give up your belief, your core set of beliefs uh, to have a discussion about on the ground what works. So my my view in this and then I'll get back to the political issue is um, we're not going to learn about the structure of the cosmos or the biology of disease from religion. But if you're a behavioral scientist and you want to understand what moves people's hearts and minds. Religion's been at that for millennia. And it would be hubristic of us to assume that they don't have things that work, uh, practices or nudges or mechanisms, even if they don't understand the, scientific, the science behind it. 
And you know, we we bioprospect all the time. The so when I talk about this, I I, I had an exchange, uh, actually a, a piece I wrote for the Times, and Steve Pinker was gracious gracious enough to um, talk with me about it. And you know, Steve said to me, Dave, you know, you can't cherry pick, right? You know, there, yeah, sure, you'll find a few things that religion does that are good in terms of making people's lives better. But it does lots of terrible things too. And I'm like, Steve, I, I, I agree with you and I'm not an apologist for religion, but what I want to do is religio prospect in the same way pharmaceutical companies bio prospect. That is they'll go to the rainforest and they'll hear about all these different plants that may heal certain diseases. And lots of it is probably nonsense, but some of it we find is true. And some of it we can isolate components and then utilize them in ways that help people's lives. And so, as scientists, I think it's worth not taking positions on theology, but on the on-the-ground practices of what, you know, what are funerary practices in different religions and how they help people with grief? What are practices that um, help people uh, live better lives or have better health or feel uh, less uh, alone and depressed? And there's lots of evidence out there suggesting that religion helps people do these things. Let's study what they do not buy it hook, line, and sinker, but take it into an empirical venue and study it and be open to it. And then things that can be extracted and secularized, let's do. I mean, look at meditation, right? It is. It started as a religious practice to help people's ethical behavior, and now we have evidence that it actually does. Um, and so if we're going to argue about core beliefs, we're never going to get to the 80% of stuff that we can have an interesting conversation about uh, and study. Um, so let's not argue about, you know, is there evolution or intelligent design? Uh, we all have our views that are firmly held. But if we put those aside, we can talk about the smaller stuff that might, might actually be fruitful. And I think it's the same thing in, in political debate. You know, if we're going to argue about abortion or we're going to argue about whatever the hot button issues of the day, now Medicare for all, we're going to go into our respective camps and we're not going to have a conversation about where we actually might agree. I mean, the biggest problem I see now is any attempt toward cooperation is viewed as, you know, selling out, is viewed as losing. Um, and if you look at everything, you know, from like Martin Novak's lab, Dave Rand's lab, lots of people who study cooperation, that's the way over the long term societies grow and thrive. And if we're in a position where any type of cooperation is viewed as selling out, then we're really on the downslope. And sure, in the short term, it means we can virtue signal to our followers and we can rise up and people will see us as purity paragons. But in the long term, for the health of the society, that's kind of the death knell. And you know, science and religion, same thing with Democrats and Republicans. If you hold to your belief as a strict fundamentalist, as looking for that purity test. And I would say some of the new atheists are just as bad in that regard as some of the hardcore fundamentalists uh, of, of, of religion. You have to be open to ideas and you don't have to buy them. You don't have to give up your view of how we test and evaluate them, but you have to be open to at least talking. Um, and I, I, I hope that we'll do better with politics than we've done with the science and religion debate. But where we are right now, I don't think, I don't think that's the case. Well, it's really interesting to hear you weigh in on that. And uh, we're kind of bumping up against time here, and I want to be respectful of your time. So there's one thing I want to touch on, and that's uh, that I, I know you're working on a podcast right now that looks at public engagement from scholars. Can you uh, 
maybe say a little bit about that project? Yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's not a podcast in the usual sense. So okay. I, I mentioned this before. So we have funding, uh, Lisa Filmbera and myself and Jamie Ryerson, who's a senior editor at the Opinion Pages of the New York Times. We've been running these workshops to train people, uh, how, train scholars how to write for the public. And what we do that's entirely different than kind of the op-ed project is ours is very small. It's limited to 12 people at a time. And you come in and we have very small working groups and we work on editing stuff in real time. So you're getting feedback from Jamie in real time as he is editing stuff and showing you why and et cetera. But we can only do that with 12 people at a time just because of the intensive nature of the, of the one-to-one working. So we decided that we wanted to have a way to reach a wider audience because, you know, we'll, we'll do these workshops and, you know, we'll end up accepting 10% of the people. You know, we'll take 12 out of 150, 160 applications we got last time. And so um, what we're trying to do is, is to put something online uh, that will be a combination of um, a podcast uh, and, um, and uh, videos where you can actually see Jamie making edits to the text in real time with explanations of why he cut this, why he moved this in a way that, oh, maybe I should think about similar things for my own my own writing. But the podcasts are being produced by a, a guy working with us uh, named Joseph Friedman, um, who works in Lisa's lab, who's just extraordinary. Um, and it's not going to be an ongoing podcast, but it's, it will probably be a series of, I don't know, five to ten different conversations between Jamie and people that he has worked with, uh, delving into the whole process of why they decided to write for the public, uh, what their experiences is it was in, in doing so, um, how he viewed their work coming in and how and why he made changes to it and what they think of that. Uh, and so it'll be kind of an, an insight to uh, people who are writing for the public, but also, um, you know, respected scientists in their field, how they, how they navigate that, both in terms of the actual writing of this stuff uh, how they see it in terms of their work in the in their career in general, um, and so hopefully it'll it'll be uh, a useful resource for people who are who are thinking about uh, should I try my hand at more at more public communication and outreach. Well, that sounds uh, incredibly interesting. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that as those uh, episodes come out. Yeah, hopefully hopefully before the end of the year we'll have one or two out. If not, then shortly uh, into the new year. Cool. Well, uh, this has been a really fun talk, and it's really interesting to hear about uh, you know the different experiences you had and how things have progressed for you into the you know really amazing career that you've had. So, this has been great and a lot of fun for me, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with everyone else. So, thanks for your time, David. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Cody. So that was my conversation with David Destano. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, I think one of my favorite aspects of that was when we were talking about the uh, interdisciplinarity. And so this is something that I'm very fascinated with myself. And kind of the way that I think about it is that you have these two different forces that are, in a sense, opposing one another. And one is your core mastery, which is, like we were talking about, your thing that you have a very high level in this case, for scientists, world-class level of expertise in. And this is something that people talk about in a lot of domains, and you know there are lots of books written about this sort of thing. There's one with the title Mastery called um, or by, by an author named Robert Greene. And the point is, is that you want something that is your skill that you can do better than almost anyone else. However, there's this other force uh, on the other side of things, 
which is uh, essentially your ability to incorporate ideas that other people who have the same mastery or a similar kind of mastery uh, don't necessarily know about, right? And so the idea here is that if you know the exact same things as everyone else in your field, then you are only going to come up with the same ideas and the same kind of ideas that everyone else in that field is going to come up with. And so uh, I think that there's a really important balance here, right? Which is that you want your core expertise that you can leverage because it allows you to do interesting things uh, that require a very high level of expertise that other people simply cannot attain. However, you also want to have this side of things where you have a genuinely unique opinion and perspective that you can bring to that mastery. And I think this is kind of at the core of what David was talking about with the interdisciplinarity, right? Is that you want to have both the content and the methodology of your discipline under your belt firmly, but you also want to be able to incorporate perspectives that uh, are not otherwise going to be known about in that field. And I think that that's a genuinely difficult thing to do because there's no formula for how to do it. Whereas, you know, the road to mastery might be a little bit more prescribed, right? That, that is in fact what a PhD is. Um, but the, the idea is that it's going to be unique for every person because every person has a unique set of experiences. And it takes a really uh, profound depth of knowledge about yourself to be able to attain that. And so uh, that's something that, you know, I strive for and am trying to make constant progress in. And uh, I hope that other people are able to incorporate more into their own lives and their own pursuits. So thank you for listening to Cognitive Evolution this week. Uh, my name is Cody Commerce. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or subscribe to the newsletter on my website. Um, and thank you very much for listening. I'll see you back here next week.